Welcome to The Academic Citizen, a podcast about critical issues in higher education. The podcast is sponsored by ASAWU, the Academic Staff Association of Wits University, based in Johannesburg, South Africa. Our podcast aims to explore, debate, and understand a wide variety of issues about university life relevant to staff and students. We look at issues in South Africa, Africa, and beyond. In each episode, we speak to a guest who has special insight or expertise in a particular subject, and we also bring in student voices linked to that theme. My name is Mahita Ikani, and I'm your host. My name is Samgelisio Sitole. I'm uh, studying BSc in Actual Sciences, second year student. So in my first year, I had troubles with finance and uh, academic progress, of course. I applied for about five to six bursaries, and none of them replied simply because they thought my mother Sarawi could manage me throughout my entire school years. It was very difficult for me to manage my finances because after I matriculated, I never got a full bursary. I only got a partial bursary that only covers my tuition and textbooks and registration only. So I had to pay my own academic accommodation and my meals which it was very straining since uh, I couldn't afford those. In October 2015, students around South Africa forced their lecturers, university managers, politicians and the public at large to stop what they were doing and listen to them. Their main message was hashtag fees must fall. But in the months since October, the student movement has evolved in ways that aren't always easy to understand from the outside. Although there will surely be some exceptions, most academic staff at universities care very deeply about their students, want them to reach their full potential, and want to understand how to help them get there. As such, we felt it would be important to try to gain more understanding about how students, especially those who battle to pay fees, experience paid-for university life today. With this in mind, we spoke with Shibu Motimele, a PhD student in politics at WITS, and someone who has been involved in the Fees Must Fall movement since its inception. Welcome to Shibu Motimele, PhD student in politics here at WITS, and someone who's been involved in and close to the student movement since all of the momentous happenings in October. Shibu is here with us today to help us understand the student perspective. So Shibu, if you could just start by articulating to us what are the student feelings and position and opinions in relation to fees. So I think fees is a really important issue because it connects to so many other issues. So at the beginning of the student protest in October last year, the call for a no-fee increment and then for free education was to say that if the university is truly a space for all, if we all have the right to free education, then we can't allow universities to use something like fees to exclude students who could be argued needed the most, right? Need that opportunity cost to better their standard of living for themselves and for their communities. And... After the no-fee increment, the call then changed to free education, 
because as students, as we argued these things, as we tried to understand the logic of what we wanted, we realized that it still doesn't help to say no fee increment because tons of students are still excluded every single year. At the beginning of this year, accommodation became a really important issue tied to fees because even though students had a waiver for their fees, they didn't have residence accommodation. And so that precarity was enhanced. Um, there were situations in which people were being um, offered places to stay if they'd sleep with people, right? Or people had to promise something in return, or students were just sleeping anywhere they could find cover, computer labs, library, outside, etc. And so Fees Must Fall was engaging in the university daily saying, here's a list of students, right? If we really do care, let's find residence accommodation for them, which is why the Lions issue became such a big deal. Why are you giving students free accommodation who don't even study at VIS, who could afford to pay, and leaving other students in a precarious position in which they have nowhere to stay? Um, the fee waiver has also been an issue because we know that at the end of exams, those students who haven't paid back their fees won't get their results. And so all the universities done in the fee issue is just allow you to stay a little bit longer, but still poor students are going to be excluded. And students who can't afford fees don't have the same opportunity to input into their academics or the university life to the same extent that those of us who can pay for our fees can. So I think the issue of fees is important because it affects everything else. The extent to which there's academic inclusion, the extent to which poor students don't feel alienated. To get any type of fee lenience, you have to prove your poverty, right? Which is really depressing for certain students that now I have to go find slips and receipts to show that I have no money. So it's not bad enough. Um, and then MassFest will still tell some students that you're not poor enough. So even being poor is not a good enough standard of whether or not you deserve to be here. And I think if students really want to decolonize the university, it can't be an elite space. Right? It has to be open to everyone. And fees is probably the most blatant barrier that blocks poorer people from being able to access it. So the fees protests in late 2015 started with a focus on the increment. And after that was won, um, it moved on to a kind of broader question of financial exclusion. And so I think it's really important for listeners to kind of understand um, that, yes, the goalposts did move. Because I think, you know, some might critique the student movement. It's like students won 0% increment, and then they wanted more, right? So how would you respond to that kind of critique from the outside or from those outside the student movement? I think the student movement was a particular type of social movement that worked in reverse, right? Normally you have people sitting down and thinking about what is our framework, what's our ideology, what are our principles, what do we want to fight towards, and then they create the movement. But I think the urgency of the situation was that students mobilized and organized together. And then from that space, the issues emerged. And so uh, even though you had people speaking before on what it is that students wanted, we hadn't been in a space together where we could democratically decide what it is that the student movement wants to call for. And I think that space was only created once we'd already mobilized. And so it was no fee increment. And you saw there were, the SRC was involved, thousands of students were involved, etc. But as the movement went on, once it had already emerged, people started to discuss, well, why is it that we want no fee increment, right? And does getting 0% achieve what we want? Will it reverse the financial exclusion? Will it reverse the alienation of certain types of students? Will it change the institutional culture, which does not help children who come from a particular type of background to make it through? Um, so, I mean, it is true that the goalposts did shift. 
And in my mind, I think it's a good thing that the student movement was open to debate, to change, to developing, and to moving on. Um, so, you know, when people say, well, students, you just keep changing what you want. And I was like, well, that's the nature of democracy, right? People discuss things, they debate things, and things change. And the student movement was divided, and it ended up being a few students who maintained the call for outsourcing, for instance, and that was fine, right? That's what you do. You allow people who want to go back to school to exams who think that 0% was enough to continue, and those who don't can continue fighting for what they want. So I think people have been pushing the student movement, right? What's your ideology? What do you want? What What are your principles? What's your framework? And I think that's to try box the movement into a place where it never wants to be. There's constant disagreement. There's constant conflict. There's constant new development of issues, which I think is personally a good thing. With the 0% free increment, people didn't feel like that was the immediate space, for instance, to speak about things such as, is this a welcoming space for queer bodies? Is this a welcoming space for women? Do we still perpetuate issues of patriarchy and misogyny within the movement? And even though we couldn't deal with that immediately at the announcement of the fee increment, it's issues that have come up now and has fractured the movement and caused division. But I think these are important things to keep us going towards the place where everyone wants to go. So politics aside, I mean, and I think that is quite an interesting insight into and an acknowledgement of the process of politics is that it's about a diversity of voices. It's often about differing opinions and trying to work out ways to still achieve change despite that diversity of views. Could we go back to the question of financial exclusion? And could you help listeners to understand what that means on on the ground in the life of a student who is financially not able to just waltz into WITS or any other elite university in the country and enjoy all of the resources available? How does that translate into their lives, their senses of self, their experience and their prospects? I think the best way to understand what it is for that type of student is to imagine the other student, right? So there's a registration fee, which your parents pay without even consulting you before you come. You come, you have a very easy registration process. You have all your textbooks that you need to buy. You just go and you get them. If you're struggling in a subject, you hire a personal tutor. The personal tutor tutors your accounting or politics, etc. You're staying in a res. You have three meals a day. And you can still fail in that situation, right? You can still have academic difficulties, etc. For the opposite student, it's a burden because, one, we all know we have a shocking secondary education system. And so even if people get out of high school and manage to get into bits, they're still starting at a point in which those of us who went to suburban or model C schools are not starting at. Computer skills, language skills, etc. Often they're traveling very far. Often you have to travel alone. You know, parents can't afford to travel with you. And so you arrive as an 18-year-old in a place that you don't know. You were accepted, and that's the achievement that people want to celebrate, right? They got their matric results. Their families were so happy that they were accepted at WITS. And from your family's perspective, you're now in the perfect opportunity to succeed. There's nothing blocking you. You were accepted. My child's going to go and get in. NASFAS applications never come through on time. So a lot of students who arrive here don't know whether or not they're going to get the financial assistance of that scheme. So you get here, the NASFAS queues are always about two kilometers long, people arriving every day at 5 a.m. to try to get into it early. When you get to the front of the line, they say your application was incomplete, etc. And once you're here, most people have assumed that they'll be registered, get into res, and have a place to stay. 
And so the first thing that confronts them is the insecurity of where they're going to live while you try to sort out these issues. In registration, it was shocking. A student said the other day that registration for NASFAS students normally takes between five to seven days to sort out just the technical details. And so what happens to those students in that time? Um, SRC is meant to be the one place where students can turn, but that has its own complications and controversies, right? And so SRC can help some students, but they can't help all students. And so now you're living with a very blatant physical insecurity in a place that you don't know with people that you don't know. And so even people who are offering assistance appear as a possible threat because you, you don't know anything. You're just a first-year student. Um, and I think the NASVAS application, a lot of students have spoken about the trauma of it, of having to prove that you're poor um, and having things such as uh, not the right payment slips, etc., having you excluded and having to go back home or looking for alternative funding. And so I think NASVAS is a very traumatic and stressful thing all on its own. But once students get NASVAS then and they begin schooling, you also have the double burden of knowing that you're going to have to pay back that money, right? And so this great opportunity to uplift yourself, your family, your community exists at knowing the cost of having to pay back for the education that you were meant to get. Those students who don't get NASVAS don't want to go home because how do I go from having something slaughtered for me in December that I got into VIDS to having to go back home and say, well, I can't go because I didn't get accepted for NASVAS and I don't have money. And people like to make a joke of that whole missing middle discussion, but there really are students who are not poor enough for NASVAS but could never be able to fund their schooling. Like they don't have the 35,000, even 20,000 rand that it could cost for a diploma. And so you're too poor to get an education, and yet you're too rich to apply for national funding. Um, so I think when classes start already, which is what Gift of the Givers has really helped with with their feeding scheme, is that students are so stressed about so many other things outside of this English 101 course that you're taking that their mindset in that course is not one that's conducive to doing well to begin with. And outside of tutorials, there's no other extra help that you can seek. And students say a lot of the time that well, I hear the people who answer in class, they're very confident, they have a better grasp of language than me. So I don't even feel comfortable to ask questions, right? And the person that the lecturer is teaching to is the person who understands and responds. So lots of lecturers want to give a participation mark, right? Who raises their hands, who's involved, etc. And yet the reason they're not participating is because the type of techniques that the lecturer is using is not geared to that type of student who's come from that type of, of background. Um, and at WITS now, they've taken away the extended course, which was meant to provide one year to help those students become accustomed to things like computer skills, English language, writing, etc. So now you have students just thrown into the deep end, and they don't have the financial ability to seek the type of help that could assist them. I mean, it's understandable that one lecturer can't offer themselves to that extent to 400 students, right? And tutors also have their limitations. But at the end of the day, to get a university degree then becomes a question of to what extent can you afford the tools required to get through rather than to what extent are you committed, to what extent do you want to learn, to what extent do you really need a degree. And so you know, an education, which is something that's meant to transform poverty, right, to uplift people from poverty, just becomes another space that excludes poor people and the people that it puts through are those who could survive without it anyway. Mm. 
So you've outlined a lot of social, structural, and financial constraints, which are extremely damaging and difficult for students, especially undergrads, um, coming from so-called disadvantaged backgrounds. Is just removing fees the answer? Is it enough of an answer? I don't think so. And that's why at, at the talk with Salim Batat, who was a previous VC of Rhodes, I cautioned students of the call for free education without thinking of subsequently having things that change the nature of the university because the call for free education just is a call to continue that exclusion. So fees are an important barrier to students coming here, but then after that we have to think about what type of experience will students have once they're allowed in, even once their fees are paid. Because something such as pedagogical techniques is not something that a fee increment will change or not change. Uh, the institutional culture of the university is not something, you know. So all the issues that people are active towards in terms of language policy, um, in terms of the development for your undergraduate course again, in terms of what is versus institutional culture and in what ways is it anti-black or anti-poor, etc. All those issues have to be dealt with with the same urgency and simultaneously because a lot of students get to this, they go through this process and they end up depressed or suicidal or thinking like, was it worth the sacrifices that were made to get me here? And so free education is definitely not enough, right? The fees issue is not enough, but it's an important enough barrier that it has to be dealt with as one of the priorities in terms of changing the nature of the university. So in the current student movement, and I know it's complex and full of a diversity of views and opinions, what kind of orientations towards the institution and towards government are, are we seeing at the moment? Are students, do they feel that this is a problem universities need to fix on their own in terms of management? Or is it is there a kind of broader-based approach that, that students are thinking through and talking through at the moment? The university versus government issue is complicated. And I think it's one of the ways in which we saw it was complicated was the march from just on campus, then to Lutuli House, then to Union Buildings, and then also the ways in which the university responded. Because when students were protesting on campus, there was an immediate reaction to try and vilify students um, and not to engage. But the minute students marched to Lutuli House or Union Buildings, the university was with us. And yes, they've been calling on government to fund the university more for the past 20 years, etc. And I think... There's some things that we have to hold the university directly accountable for that don't have to do with government. But then there's definitely an important role for government as well. Uh, I think one in terms of oversight to hold universities accountable in a way in which university councils don't, right? Senate, school councils, faculty councils, etc. they all structured in a way that they just affirm each other and no one is critical of anyone else to the highest body of Senate, right? And so internal accountability won't exist. Students are so minorly represented on all those places that they don't have enough of a voice to bring change about. So I think the call for government oversight is extremely important and accountability, but it's something students think twice about if you think about the previous Bush colleges in which government has had a greater hand in their everyday runnings, in which the situation is 10 times worse there than it is on our campuses. 
Um, I think the issue of funding as well, you know, students know enough of economics to know that the university could never offer free education without government funding, which is why there's been investigations and reports that have been done and given to the Ministry of Higher Education that just hasn't acted on them, on ways in which education could be freely funded. So I think in terms of fees, government is extremely important. But then there's also the question of university finances. Nobody looks at university finances. We don't know what it is that they're spending money on. And so when we have all these austerity measures now that no more free printing for postgrad students, no more of this, and everyone's like, well, you wanted fees to fall, this is the result. Why is it that student needs are immediately where you cut funding when there's a whole body of things that the university pays for, outsourcing, which was one of them, which could also take cuts? So I think the relationship between the two is one that you can't dismiss, right, between national government and the university. But there's some things that the university has to answer for themselves, and there's other things to which we can engage government in terms of. I think some things that academic staff might be nervous of is, along with the call for more government funding, which is needed in order to increase access, is a fear of government involvement. Because there's this idea of academic freedom that we should be able to research what we believe is important and teach in ways and teach topics that we believe are important without government telling us how to do it. You know, is that a strong feeling amongst students that more government involvement is needed in how academics do their jobs? A lot of the time the academic autonomy issue is raised disingenuously as a way to protect the lack of change or to ensure that people aren't put under pressure to change. And as students, we're saying, well, you've had this academic autonomy thing and you haven't initiated any type of change. If anything, you've invested into the status quo. And so the fact that you feel so strongly about this academic autonomy to continue perpetuating a situation which is not working for students shows that there needs to be some sort of uh, oversight and accountability. And so I think the ways in which, perhaps from an academic perspective, government involvement is imagined wouldn't follow through to students because academic autonomy is part of the problem part of the problem from a student perspective in the fact that if there hasn't been any involvement in the ways in which courses have been structured, the university has been structured up until this point, then the university wants to take 100% accountability for its alienating and exclusionary nature. And if that's the case, that's an important enough issue to make government have to step in. So I think that the wariness is, is not on that part. However, I think the eagerness we've seen of universities to point the finger at government might just mean that with increased government funding, they'll just use that as another scapegoat for every issue that goes wrong, right? But we didn't get our funding on time, or the government's not funding us enough, when things like institutional culture don't need money to change. In places where you see it happen at a micro level within departments or faculties, it's just been a person who's been willing enough to be open to suggestions, to transforming, to changing things. And so I think the issue of, of academic autonomy is controversial because a lot of the time it's just used by those who want to block change, who want mm -hmm. to remain the same, and to use academic autonomy as what they wrap their investment in the status quo in. But I do think there are a lot of academic colleagues who would believe or would argue that they've tried very hard to contribute in some way to the project of transformation, 
I guess there are many ways to contribute to that project. That's, yeah, those are some interesting, interesting points that you've made there about government involvement. From your perspective, you know, we've, we've, we're trying to chat to as many stakeholders and people with different positionalities as we can. There is an argument made by those who manage and run institutions, who run universities, that financially it's just not feasible to not charge fees at all. There are, you know, some discussions about sliding scales, you know, let the rich continue to pay or let them pay even more, et cetera, et cetera. So what are your views on on how it could work? Like how could an institution like a university fund itself without fees? Everyone seems to be locked into this idea that it's the only way to be financially viable, whether or not that's true or that is the case is up for debate. So what are your views on if it's achieved, if university education becomes free in this country, how would that be achieved? How would that work from your perspective? I think it, it all depends on like a larger framework that you use, right? So for those people who invested in maintaining a commodified education within a neoliberal system, a university can't exist without students paying for it, right? You're a consumer, you're here to get a good, that good is education, you must pay for it and you'll get benefits out of it. But if we start to imagine a university in a different framework, right, which is the discussions we're having, if we see the university as a public good, right, a public good that everyone has the right to access, we don't then ask the question about whether or not your ability to have access to water should depend on your pocket because of the way in which we associate water as a necessity and something that people shouldn't be excluded from on the basis of money. And so... As students, that's what we're saying, that, well, let's see the university as a public good. And if just that macro framework changes, a lot of things will change internally. One, the focus on research output won't be the priority that it is. There'll be a greater focus on teaching because students then become the public good that you're trying to nurture and give back out. Also, the type of research that we do. It's great to get Nobel Prizes and all these international ratings, but how is this research socially responsive? How does it respond to the social context that we're in here in Bramfontein, here in Johannesburg, here in South Africa? And so if we shift the mindset of what is the place that we want the university to play in society, then all those other questions won't be the first priority, right? The first question is not can it be done, it's how do we do it? And I think there's been enough research conducted to show that tertiary education could be free. Um, And even the places in which government can get that funding there was an Amandla.mobi petition to say, well, Blake, you had a commission three years ago. The report came out telling you how to pay for it. Why didn't you release the report? And stop letting this conversation be stunted by the question of, can it, is it economically feasible? We know that it is, but it will be at a cost. At a cost that challenges the framework in which our government and country works currently. And so, I mean, a different point that was made was the question of, well, should the rich be allowed to get free education? And again, if we see the university as a public good, free education for all isn't such an offensive thing. Like, why should we allow someone to be able to afford another Ferrari instead of paying for their education? But, like, deeply embedded in how you pay for free education isn't an increased tax on those who can afford more. And so it's not going to be a case in which the rich just get this benefit that is at no cost for them. In fact, a lot of the resistance towards the call for free education is the 
acknowledgement by business and by the rich that it's going to affect their pockets through some type of government tax. And so I think the question of free education for all is simple, right? I mean, can be paid for. The question is, people who are then going to be tasked with paying more to pay for it, what is the nature of their power compared to those who are asking for it? And we know that, well, the wealthy are more powerful politically and socially, whether or not that's right or wrong, and have the ability to block a government-level report from being released. And so it, it can be paid for. It's not something that universities have been asked to fund out of their own pockets although as a sign of goodwill, it would make sense for universities to provide independently greater funding to students who can't afford. So I just, I think it, at the end of the day, it's about political will. Political will and also the ways in which politically we're willing to challenge those with capital to come to the table, because at the end of the day, they are necessary. Mm. What you're describing to me sounds like it might be quite a slow process yeah. and something that we all will need a lot of patience and a, a willingness to think outside the boxes of a particular economic mindset. Just one response to one of the many interesting things that you've said. Yeah, I agree. I think you're making strong arguments here about the university and education, higher education being a public good, something that should be accessible to and shared by all. But I'm not so sure about the kind of distinction made between research and teaching, as though they're completely separate parts of the higher education project. They feed into one another, you know, good research, understanding new things about the world and how it works helps us to be better teachers. Teaching helps us to do better research. And there's this really, and it's not necessarily always recognized by institutions, but there is this really important integrated interface between research and teaching, which I believe ultimately benefits students. No one wants to be taught by a person who hasn't written anything relevant about what they're being taught about. But, but I think it's, it's difficult because from a student perspective, we have to wonder how is it that all these people have been hired and yet they have no teaching and learning techniques. They don't know how to teach to a diverse class. And when we look at it, it's like, oh, well, they have the potential to produce research output, which is really important for the university in mm -hmm. terms of prestige and funding, etc., and for me, that's a problem. When you prioritize someone's ability to produce not even socially responsive research, just globally recognized research or funding producing research at the cost of what is their teaching and learning capabilities, then that's a huge problem. Absolutely. And teaching is hard. Teaching is not an easy thing to do. And some people are naturally better at it than others. Some of us need training. We need to practice. We need feedback. We need to learn what we're doing wrong and learn how to do it better. But yeah, you make some really important points about how the institutional emphasis placed on, on research as something that's more valued often. Back to the kind of financial issues. How do you feel, do you feel optimistic or pessimistic about what lies ahead? Financial exclusion is a real and very devastating reality for too many students. I don't think anyone can argue with the facts that poor students are just in numerous ways structurally disadvantaged in ways that affect their ability to learn, their ability to succeed. Students have succeeded in putting these very important issues onto the table, into the public eye, have achieved a whole bunch of things in the last six months. What are your feelings about where we're going? And, and how do you think, okay, two questions. How do you think students will continue to work on and campaign on and hope to kind of change things 
And secondly, what do you think academic staff can and should be doing? I mean, it's a difficult question to answer because at the height of student protests nationally last year, where there was this mass buy-in by all students, at the point in which things disintegrated, it wasn't around student issues, right? It was the success of political parties to intervene, create divisions, recall certain factions that you can't participate in this any further, etc. But I completely believe that at the height of student protests, if students were able to agree um, nationally that the core was no free education, no elections, we would have had free education by now. At the point at which government was successful enough to create deep enough divisions that the student movement isn't a mass mobilization anymore, and so the call for free education is seen as something that's coming from a small group of students. I think the type of violence we've seen on campuses to make make it seem as if it's this chaotic situation in which there's a few renegade students who who are making this call uh, highlights an important issue, which is that the student movement is young. Right? It's learning, it's trying to mature and develop itself. And so I don't think we're going to have that type of mass national core until we reach the type of maturity that social movements get. Right? How do we deal with divisions without fracturing? How do we remain mass mobilized, nonpartisan, which is really important? Right? How do we keep the student thing at the center, remove the EFF, SASCO, PYA, et cetera, other affiliations that people have, and still have a common goal? So, I mean, in terms of possibility, I'm part of those people who think that free education is not something that's going to take long. It's because we know it's been on the books for so long and all that work has already been done. I think right now it really is an issue of of political and social will. But I think when are students ever going to get to that same type of organization and mobilization that we have a bargaining chip to make that call? I think it's going to take a very long time an extremely long time. I think the question is just whether or not the movement will survive those growing pains that a movement needs to get to that point, or if it won't. Um, and, I, and I hope it will survive. I, I'm, you know, part of those people who think it can survive, but we have to do the hard work to survive. Very uncomfortable, a lot of self-introspection, dealing with that issue of you know, why should greater society care? Those who make it into university are minority, and it's an elite problem. Even for those black poor students, mm-hmm. other students have had to leave high school at 16 and go start working. So how are you going to co-opt buy-in outside of the university where everyone sees the university already as a privileged space? Like, even if you're poor, the fact that you can take three years of your life to go to university already puts you in a, in a better position. So I think also the way in which we're able to transcend that conversation, right, to make linkages with greater protests within society to show people how this is an important issue and it should be an important issue for everyone or also show the extent to which we're successful. If we had greater societal input, you know, most of our parents were like, why aren't you studying? What is this? You know, you can go to university, don't waste that opportunity. I think a lot of academic staff might have had a similar reaction. Um, But all the people who, who make that don't understand the psychological implication of being in this in this space, mm-hmm. right? So when someone commits suicide at a university, people are like, but why? This is meant to be a place of hope. And we're like, well, if you look at the reality, it's actually one of despair for lots of students. Mm-hmm. So I think it's going to take long. I'm not so much interested in terms of, you know, because people have to be persuaded or convinced, etc. I think it's just going to take long for the student movement to mature to 
a good enough place in which we can face divisions without fracturing um, and we can have general calls that we want to make nationally, which, which might take a very long time to happen. I mean, what can academics do? So the issue of resources is brought up a lot when we speak about transforming the university. And I went to a conference at Rhodes about curriculum transformation. And a lot of people spoke about how they're getting money from the universities to do research and they're trying to change things, etc. Um, and then uh, Vashna and Noma Lange in history got up and said, well, look, our history department is completely transformed. We didn't need a single cent. We didn't need anyone's permission. It happened because we wanted to do it and we had the will. And so I think a lot of questions sometimes that academics ask deflect the fact that there's things that they can do immediately in their spaces, which would have a greater change than something huge like a call for free education, because a lot of the most heartbreaking things that happen to students is in that one-on-one -on -one interaction, is reading through that course outline and being totally alienated from that material and struggling to find its relevance. And that's something if, if academics sit there their academic autonomy seriously, that could have been, we shouldn't be speaking about curriculum transformation. The fact that curriculum transformation is an issue means that academics haven't done enough, one, to engage with their students on what they want to learn, or two, to care. Right? All you have to do to change something is to care. And I think academics have the type of freedom in, in this university in which they can construct any type of curriculum that they want. The issue of academic involvement and in student protest is more complicated because we know that at universities, including WITS, institutionally, universities have turned around and said, well, look, you're part of us. You should be on our side, and by aligning with students, there are certain consequences that might occur that you should be aware of. And I don't think as students we'd ever, I mean, we know the, the sacrifices and consequences of our own involvement, that we'd ever just expect people to make that type of trade-off when it's their livelihood. But you have lots of different types of academics. And I think something the student movement has been open about is that we don't know everything, right? that we are willing to learn. And so it was really nice to have some academics give talks every night about, well, what is minimum wage? You know, How does it affect a, a space? How, how is it that workers can call on a decent living wage? And there they are using their research outputs to assist the movements, right? And those were very well attended by workers and students who dying to get the knowledge to grapple with the issues we're trying to grapple with, right? A lot of the, the rhetoric has been, well, look, this is black pain, the university hates support, but if things are going to change institutionally, nationally, etc., we know there has to be a deeper analysis, right? And so the academics that have been most helpful have been the ones who said, well, let me use my work to show you guys how it is, you know? We've worked in social movement. Let's tell you how social movements work, how they've dealt with division, how they've managed to, to push through difficulties. Mm -hmm. And there you have academics with tools that they have already, right? Not having to compromise themselves by being on the front lines with students, but still assisting the student movements in terms of learning. Yeah, I think that's very relevant for academics who work within the humanities and social mm -hmm. sciences. But you can imagine it maybe feels a little more abstract for someone who teaches first-year biology, right? The structure mm -hmm. of a cell or maths or physics or you know things that have a less direct relation to questions of social justice and I think those colleagues believe that what they're doing is helping to further knowledge in an important area which isn't like directly about social transformation yet has a long long you know long-term knock-on effect of 
creating experts, future experts in those, those fields. So it's a really, I think it's a really like complex balancing act that we have to do. Because yes, we, we want the material we teach to be relevant to students and then to get it, feel like it's relevant, have a say in what they're learning. Yet at the same time, we're looked to as, you know, people who need to develop the new experts. So it's like this really complex. Mm. Yeah. And experts in what, right? Because surprising for us, uh, the bit contingent at this conference is that we were mainly from the social sciences. Mm. But a lot of the students who, who attended and were trying to say how they're not being recognized in that space were students from science, economic, engineering, mm. etc. And, you know, one of the students from from science said, you know, people in these sectors don't realize that they're still dealing with humans, right? And as a human being, you have feelings, etc. And she's like, and so for us, when we're doing anything to do with AIDS, and the example is always a black person living in the township, it affects us. And because our teachers think they are so objective, they're in such a neutral field, it's they just, you know, glance it over as, yes, this is Tabo, he's got six kids, he has AIDS, not seeing the ways in which they're perpetuating certain types of problematic social stereotypes. Also, those areas are most important if we want to see the university as a public good, right? Because how are those sciences going to be socially responsive? How do they relate to problems we have in in South Africa? And so people keep making the example that, you know what, maybe in economics and in sciences, we need to have a compulsory social science course in which people have, have a broader context that they know that they're working in. Because that notion that there are some fields that are so factual or so, you know, it is what it is, X times Y, are often a lot of the most problematic fields because nothing exists in a vacuum. At the moment in which you're dealing with people, you're dealing with examples, is what they do a lot. Students get certain perceptions of how they position or appear to be within that space. So, I mean, it was interesting for me to go to the transformation talk by Professor Malikani in economics to know that even within a field like economics, which people think, you know, economics is what it is, he's engaged in a lot of academic activism within the university and saying that, look, it's not, right? We have to be open to the fact that the way we teach and how we teach is affecting our students. And so we can't keep saying that there's particular types of sciences which are more or less geared towards social justice. If the university is a public good, everything we're doing should be geared towards some notion or acknowledgement that social inequality is an issue. Spoken like a true social scientist and critical <laughs> thinker. So we've had a long conversation. Is there any parting shot or final word you want to say, final reflection on what financial issues, fees issues mean? I just think that one thing I think students have been able to do that I think academics and institutions struggle to do is to realize the personal nature of these things. Right? And so for students, there's had to be an had to have been a great level of self-introspection, right? How do we relate to our coursework? How do we relate to each other? How do we relate to to the space? And I mean, it is an uncomfortable place to be. It is causing to question a lot of the benefits that we have ourselves, etc. And I think, I think if academics and institutions were more open, right, to see things not as criticisms or critiques, but but as an opportunity to do better, uh, we'd get a lot further with a lot less from. I think many listeners, academic staff in particular, will have found this discussion very enlightening. 
In terms of the insight into the experiences of students facing financial exclusion and precarity, as well as into how the student movement is structured, or rather not structured, at the moment. Although the student movement was initially characterized as only concerned with fees, there are a number of issues linked to that, ranging from access, exclusion, to learning support and transformation. The broad base of support that we saw in October 2015 seems to have dissolved a bit, but nevertheless, questions of financial exclusion and transformation remain pressing for many. We have lots of work to do to listen and think and talk through solutions to these challenges. Our sincere thanks to Shibu Motemele for sharing her opinions and viewpoints on these topics. For now, we need to close, once again, the same way we opened, with some words from a student on the street on the topic of financial exclusion. Hi, my name is Theodore Smith. I am a first-year civil engineer. For the current year I'm studying now, my parents are funding me. I don't have a bursary. My parents aren't working, but they did manage to make money. So, yeah. And for next year, hopefully, I, hopefully if I do get a bursary, I should be funded. But if not, I don't think I'd be coming back. The Academic Citizen is a podcast sponsored by ASAU, the Academic Staff Association of Fitz University. ASAU is the union representing the interests of academic staff at Fitz. For more information, visit www.asau.org.za. The Academic Citizen aims to be a platform for a diversity of views and opinions. We welcome your feedback, comments and suggestions for future guests and shows. Email us at theacademiccitizen at gmail.com or leave a comment at www.theacademiccitizen.org. Today's show was presented by Mahita Ikani. Research, scheduling, editing and production was done by Balungi Lembenyane. Thanks to Shibu Motimele, Samgelisiwe Sitole and Theodore Smith for their time, as well as Pervez Khan for his input and David Hornsby for his moral support. Jürgen Mikkel created our jingle.